Hello, everyone, and welcome to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm Lisa Fortier, and I'm editor-in-chief of the AVMA Journals, and I'm joined by co-host and our social media editor for the AVMA Journals, Dr. Sarah Wright. We are bringing you a special episode with our guest, Dr. Nicole Earhart. Nicole, we are so excited to speak with you today. Nicole is a true leader in transitional oncology as it applies to One Health. Nicole is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Surgery, an ACVS founding fellow in surgical oncology, a professor of surgical oncology at Colorado State University, and is the director for the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging and the Laboratory of Comparative Musculoskeletal Oncology and Traumatology. In this episode, we're going to talk about Nicole's April 2022 JAVMA Currents in One Health Manuscript, Regenerative Medicine 2.0, Extracellular Vesicle-Based Therapeutics for Musculoskeletal Tissue Regeneration. Dr. Earhart, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, let's dive right in. You are the very first Currents in One Health author for JAVMA. What does translational medicine mean to you and your program? Um, thank you. And thank you for allowing me to be the first author. That was an honor. I appreciate that. Um, to answer your question about translational medicine, the traditional definition of translational medicine is really the bench to bed- bedside concept. So going through all the steps from discovery and development of something that makes it all the way through to have a widespread impact in healthcare, whether that's veterinary or human healthcare. And as we know, those two things are really not very much of a dividing line, right? And you asked what it means to me in my lab, and I think I would add in those definitions a couple more pieces, one of which is that it's also about letting the clinical challenges inform what the problem is. So we in academia can exist in our ivory tower and look out over the land and think that we understand what is, you know, the great challenge that people are facing in the clinic or, you know, people, uh, animals or people who are ill. But the truth is, is that until you walk in those shoes, it's really hard to understand that. So as a clinician scientist, that adds a lot of synergy to the scientific process, because we actually are on the ground and experiencing what's happening in the clinic. And then we allow that to inform our research. So I would add that aspect And then the other aspect is really about the concept of the one medicine bridge, which is really that there's this two-way street between um, both human and veterinary medicine. And that frequently when we look look across disciplines, not just medical disciplines or human versus animal, but even across engineering and cellular biology and many, many other disciplines of science, that frequently we, by bringing those perspectives to bear on a challenge, we often are able to solve it in a more um, broad way in a more effective way than we are just by working in solitude without other specialists and other experts that bring their own unique viewpoints. So those are the two pieces I would probably add to that kind of traditional um, definition. It's truly amazing how interconnected science is. Agreed. Agreed. You've made remarkable accomplishments in comparative oncology. What were the clinical challenges that led your group down this path? Well, um, the story kind of starts with um, when I was a resident in um, surgery, I was a very first year resident. It was within a, within a few weeks of me starting my residency that um, Steve Withrow um, burst into the OR and asked me if I would please be a lifeguard at a children's cancer camp. And um, I said yes, because he was Steve Withrow and you're not going to say no to him. And so I showed up at this cancer camp, you know, and 
met a lot of kids with cancer. And one girl in particular, whose name was Jennifer, um, had just recently had an amputation because she had osteosarcoma. She was bald and, you know, was trying to get around on crutches and adapt to this, you know, new change. And uh, at that same time, we'd been learning about limb salvage in dogs. And it was very odd to me that here we could do this reconstruction of a limb in a dog. And yet I'm looking at a nine-year-old girl who just had an amputation for the same exact disease. And uh, what I learned, of course, and we know now is that limb salvage in growing children is a big issue. It's, it's much more difficult because the bone needs to grow in concert with the other limb, et cetera. And there are many, many challenges associated with limb salvage, not at all unlike challenges that are associated with limb salvage in dogs. And it really kind of sparked the interest of, you know, why, um, why we as veterinarians can make such a broad impact in human medicine um, because we had this disease that mimicked the human disease almost identically. And the challenges that we faced were very similar. And that was really what kind of launched me into the interest in regenerative medicine. How do you, you know, heal big bone and muscle defects, whether that's from trauma or cancer, and can you do it safely in a cancer patient? Because as we know, if we're asking bone to grow in a place, especially in an adult, in a person who already had bone cancer, it's possible that we could actually reignite, if you will, the cancer from you know, those types of interventions. So in the setting of a cancer patient, how can we use regenerative medicine safely? So that was kind of what launched the career down the musculoskeletal regeneration pathway for me. That's really fascinating, Nicole. You're such a rock star and an inspirational role model. And really, uh, I share your enthusiasm for how we can really lead as veterinarians. And that's really what we're trying to do with the Currents in One Health. So thank you again for taking the leap of faith and being our first author. Sure. Uh, although it's not the subject of your JABMA Currents in One Health manuscript, I remember a conversation we had where you were describing uh, when COVID started you, how you led the efforts and were in discussion with the governor of Colorado and how you really led the epidemiology and some of the testing. Could you share that story with our listeners? Yeah, this is one of those stories that you you still, you look back and shake your head and wonder how in the world it all worked out the way it did. But um, as part of my job as the director for the Center for Healthy Aging, we do a lot of human subjects research as well. So we do dog dog, cat, and humans. Um, and I was developing relationships with um, residential care facilities for seniors, for older adults, um, in order to create a pipeline to get some human subjects, you know, uh, participants for some of our clinical trials in humans. Um, and then COVID hit. And it was the, my perspective as a veterinarian, as, as things started to unfold, was that there was no testing available, but the, or the only testing that was available was for people that were hospitalized. And as, I'm not a like a herd medicine person, but even me as a small animal surgeon was thinking, if this was a foreign animal disease outbreak, for example, we wouldn't be testing the sick. We would isolate the sick, or in the case of a herd, maybe cull the sick, um, but we would test the well and try to figure out who are the carriers and when is it safe to bring new animals into the herd and that whole thing. Well, no one was talking about surveillance testing. In fact, there was a fairly strong opinion that people that were asymptomatic couldn't transmit COVID. And so um, I talked to one of our virologists, a, a colleague of mine, and I said, 
this is crazy. We should be developing some kind of test. This is PCR. It's not rocket science. There was no FDA approved test other than the ones that were available. So couldn't we do this as a research project where we created our own PCR primers that mimic what they were doing in CDC, the CDC test, and actually test people? And who'd we test? We'd test the most vulnerable. So we, we went to these um, senior care facilities and started testing staff as well as residents and learn that 15% of the staff coming to work every day, asymptomatic, were actually positive for the virus. Then we did a bunch of plaque assays that basically showed, yes, they could transmit the virus. And then you know what happened. I mean, it was a disaster. There was a lot of death that was starting to build up in these homes, unfortunately. So the, the way I ended up talking to the governor was I somehow got invited to be on a call with him to discuss um, you know, mitigation strategies in senior care facilities. And I just told him this story and he was like, hold up, you know, say that again. I said, yeah, 15% positive. And he said, all right, we want to help you out. And he said, I'd like you to start um, developing some testing strategies for surveillance and $20 million of funding later, we led that, um, that process through the state of Colorado, which later was adapted nationally and got the attention of Washington and stuff. So Again, a dog doctor up in Fort Collins um, talking to the governor and saying, hey, maybe we should think about it this way. And it really was the perspective I brought as a veterinarian that changed the path of, of how we started doing that in the state as well as in the country, which to still blows my mind. But it just speaks to the, the power of veterinary medicine in the greater global health, whether that's animal or people and populations. And I think it was just a, it's a great story because... Um, this this career allows you to reinvent yourself in so many ways, and we have a lot we can contribute. Yeah, you're very modest. I would still love to publish some version of that story for everybody to know. It's it's a fascinating story, and as you said, you know, it's veterinarians leading the way in one health. So very proud of. I think we're both we're all very proud of being veterinarians, and and that I mean, think of the impact you had with that conversation. Astonishing. Sometimes providence moves, I guess, you know, and just to have a voice. Um, it speaks to the fact that veterinarians should have a voice in many more aspects of global health. And that's exactly what the One Medicine concept proposes. Agree. If, if you were trying to give advice to a Nicole Earhart of 20 years ago, what one or two life lessons would you give to her on how to navigate all of these things and really bring that concept of clinician scientist one medicine to impact all of our patients? Um, yeah, I think, I think we're naturally very humble as veterinarians. And one thing, especially as an academic veterinarian that didn't dawn on me until much later in my career is that is how much of an influencer you are. And I don't mean necessarily on a you know national level, like what happened with the COVID, but just like with your students and with the residents and you know, you have a bad day one day and are in a bad mood. And a lot of people are wondering what's wrong with them, you know? And so try to remember that you're like you, people look to you and you're a leader, whether you think you're a leader or not. Um, and that's a really important job and responsibility um, to have. And so kind of keep that in mind. It would be what I would tell my younger self. Um, I'd also say that you're always a student. So you may be a leader, but you're always learning. And the best teachers are your patients and the, their families. Um, I think that's something I learned very early that paying very close attention and being humble enough to know that I didn't know everything 
was a really important aspect of being a good doctor. And then the final, I guess, tip would be, don't be afraid to reinvent yourself. You know, you will change over your career and what you think you started doing, what you think you'll always do may not be what you always do. And that's okay. And sometimes, you know, aligning yourself best with that life stage and your passions and talent can lead to really incredible doors that open that you never had predicted you would walk through. So I think those are some pretty important pieces that I've learned. If I could tell myself 30 years ago or 20 years ago, I would love to give myself that advice. We have such unique capabilities and responsibilities as veterinarians, and you've been such a great role model for veterinarians leading in One Health. As director, what is your vision for the Kalamatin Health System Center for Healthy Aging and similarly for the Laboratory of Comparative Musculoskeletal Oncology and Traumatology? Thanks um, for that question. You know, um, what kind of led me to go from musculoskeletal regeneration and cancer in a cancer setting to the aging setting was really this knowledge that it's a really, it's just expanding the scope. So as we age, for example, um, we have, uh, we undergo um, stem cell exhaustion. Well, you know, same thing happens when you have a big bone defect or a muscle defect, you exceed your regenerative capacity to heal that defect. Same thing happens as we age just on a much slower basis. And so it occurred to me that we could apply a lot of the strategies that we're using to heal large musculoskeletal defects to perhaps slow or reverse some of those changes in the musculoskeletal system associated with aging. Um, and the concept of one medicine is really the bridge between, you know, what early discovery is being made now in the hallmarks or drivers of aging and what we can do to make meaningful health impacts. That translational bridge um, has been, we've always sort of lived on one side of the chasm, you know, built discovery builds up really, really a lot, but we can't get a lot of things into human medicine. And so since companion animals age with us alongside of us in the cases of dogs and cats and other companion animals, household animals, they live in our exact same environment. And there's no other laboratory animal that does that. Um, and they're exposed to our lifestyle changes, our driver, you know, our environmental, um, toxicities, et cetera, um, they are a much better model for human aging than, um, than a laboratory mouse or other laboratory animals. And who does not want their great Dane to live healthy until they're 17, right? So this is a beautiful example of how the one medicine concept can really advance the, um, you know, the state of aging and longevity therapeutics, which is what we're looking at is to increase health span, number of years that we're healthy um, and bring that to human medicine, but also, you know, bring that to animals. Uh, the CSU Combine Health System Center for Healthy Aging is the only academic aging center in the world led by a veterinarian. And there have been brilliant and very successful academic aging programs at Harvard and MIT and Stanford and the Buck Institute. And we're the new kid on the block, right? Little CSU is now has an aging center, an aging research center. But if we're going to be the new kid on the block, we've got to bring something that's unique and differentiates ourselves from our you know, colleagues and our, our peers. And what we have and nobody else has in the aging space is this comparative medicine piece. And so what I'd like to see happen for the center is that we become the intervention um, in through cl cl uh, canine clinical trials um, for these new longevity therapeutics that are in the discovery phase now. And we work on that in my lab, um, then bring that to our pet patients because we want them to live healthy and longer lives and then eventually translate that 
accelerate that translation into people. Um, and the Laboratory for Comparative um, Oncology and Musculoskeletal Biology is really about the stem cell and regenerative part of that, and as well as like senescent cells and other things that um, we are using that aspect of drivers of aging to sort of address those big defects that are acute, like after cancer, or also over long periods of time. So they're, they're very overlapping. It's amazing how interlinked our pets' lives are with ours. And I can't say kudos enough for all of your accomplishments and just the advancements that you've made in the field. You've truly made it a better place, not only for animals, but also for people too. Now back to your manuscript for a moment. What is the clinical take-home message from your work that you'd like veterinarians to know? Yeah, um, this is an important thing because I think we've learned a lot from the journey we've traveled with stem cell therapies. And as you know, the article is really about kind of cell-free therapies or these new extracellular vesicle-based therapies. Um, and the, the journey that we've been on with stem cell therapy, unfortunately, has been sort of muddied by the fact that we haven't been the best stewards, I think, of that tool in terms of trying to understand the best ways to use them, the optimal dosing really understand the difference from one individual to another in terms of their stem cell population and regenerative capacity. We don't really even know the minimally effective biologic dose or the best way to administer them. And yet we started sort of in the wild west phase, kind of giving them to everything, hoping that they help. And unfortunately, what it did is slow the process down of really creating something that from a discovery place could really make a meaningful impact in the healthcare world by being able to create a consistent product and understand its biology better and all of that. So I think the take-home message for clinicians will be, we as a profession need to be very good stewards of this new technology and this new discovery and be able to shepherd it in a way that we don't end up in a place that stem cells ended up, which was very muddy water. We still can't sort it out. It's tangled up. If we can probably, if we can slow down a little bit, apply a little bit more scientific method to our clinical trials and, you know, really understand the mechanisms of action and dosing and things like that, we're going to end up in a better place with this therapy. And so I think that we as veterinarians can also be leaders, thought leaders in that space as well. Um, and I would encourage all of us to, you know, be cautious and be good stewards of these types of new developments and discoveries. Amen to that, Nicole. <laughs> what is the one thing the fabulous Nicole Earhart is never without? Like physical thing? Anything. I am never without a refillable water bottle. <laughs> there it is. You do live in Colorado. <laughs> yes, that is my, I, I think I might have a psychological attachment because if I don't have my water bottle with me, I'm a little panicked and I'm suddenly very, very thirsty. Even if, but if I do have it, I drink like a normal person during the day. I don't know what it is. That's awesome. <laughs> Very practical too. I like it. It's a good answer. Be hydrated. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another good take home uh, for our listeners. Um, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today. You can read Dr. Earhart's full manuscript in JAVMA on our new journal website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright, joined by Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode for the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon.